0: Maybe you've sat through some sermons that felt like they went on forever. I don't think any of us have sat through one quite like this. A few years ago, a pastor by the name of Zach Zedner in Mount Dora, Florida, preached for 53 hours and 18 minutes. Guinness Book of World Records was there to verify it is the longest uninterrupted religious message of any kind. Uh, He said the way he pulled it off was he took 60 sermons trying to tell the whole story of the Bible and he just tried to preach them one after the other. Although somewhere around the middle, he said he skipped a couple along the way. But anyway, it all turned out well. At the end, he raised a bunch of money for charity. At one point, his uh, bathroom breaks were very tightly regulated by Guinness. And it it didn't look like he was going to make it back in the time allotment. And at the last second, he emerged from the bathroom to continue his preaching and the whole congregation erupted into applause. I don't know the last time someone g- gave you applause for going to the potty, but uh, <laughs> most of us grow out of that stage, but not him, apparently. Now, that's an incredible sermon. It, it has an award in Guinness for a reason. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that there are a heavenly analog, a heavenly awards for preachers or so, but if so, I, I got to think that there must be an entry for the greatest response to one day worth of preaching. And if so, I think Jonah must be a shoe-in. Because what an amazing story we have in Jonah chapter 3. We have a a prophet who preaches for a day and a whole city that repents. I've never heard anything like like, like it. I don't think there is anything that's happened like it, quite like it in this world. Now, as amazing as it is what Jonah does, it would be a mistake for us to focus too much on him and his preaching because This passage is actually about the God that sends Jonah to preach to Nineveh. It's about the mercy that God has on this city that doesn't deserve it and his relentless pursuit of this city through, yes, even this disobedient prophet. That's what we'll see this morning, that we cannot underestimate the mercy of God toward sinners. We can't underestimate the mercy of God towards sinners. We'll see that in three sections, three actions by three different people or groups of people along the way. In one through four, we'll see the rising to the call. We'll see Jonah rising up to his second call from God to go and preach to Nineveh. Second in five through nine, we'll see the repenting from evil from this great pagan city Nineveh. We'll see them turning from their evil and turning to God. And then finally, the crown jewel of all this in verse 10. We'll see the relenting from judgment. God's mercy toward a city full of sinners. And we'll see some of ourselves and his mercy toward sinners like us. And all this we'll see we cannot underestimate the mercy of God toward sinners who repent. Let's begin in one through four, rising to the call, maybe you've had a situation in life where you knew you needed a do-over, stumbled over a first introduction, maybe you said something unkind, or maybe you really messed up a project. Uh, I've learned the hard way that I am not a preacher that can preach off of a digital device, um, I, that is not a conviction. I hold deeply. I don't hold it against anyone that wants to preach from an iPad or something like that, but I carry a, a paper Bible up with me. And uh, that's because I had a bad experience one time. Um, I got up to preach and I had a fancy new uh, electronic device with my notes and my Bible on it, and I'm very tech savvy, so I really thought this was cool. And right as I was beginning my sermon, the device restarted. Now, about five minutes into that sermon, I wished that I could have a different sort of restart. I was stumbling over my words. It took me forever to get the thing back up, and I just said, you know what, forget it. Paper Bibles for me from now on. Now, we've all had some sort of experience where we know, man, a second chance would be really nice. A restart would be really nice. And let's recognize that God very often gives not only second, but sometimes third and fourth chances. And yet, he doesn't have to do that certainly not for anyone who fails in ministry, and yet he does it for Jonah. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 are almost word for word. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God reissues the same call to Jonah after, you know, that minor thing, his giant disobedience that led him as far away from God as he could possibly go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Again, word for word, the the exact same commissioning, showing us just the incredible mercy of God toward Jonah, giving him a second chance. But there is a slight variation there. At at the end of of verse two, there's a phrase that's included in this commissioning that wasn't in the last one. Call out against it the message that I tell you. That's a minor little thing. Jonah was being sent to deliver a message, a word from the Lord. But, but here it's as if God is focusing a little bit more on the message he is sending Nineveh and less on Jonah himself and even the city. The word that God wants to get to Nineveh is the point. And as amazing as it is that Jonah gets a second chance, he is just the vehicle to get it there. Now, notice who it is that it's going to go to. It's to Nineveh, an exceedingly great city, three days in journey in chapter uh, verse 3 there. Now, Nineveh was not yet at this point the capital of the Assyrian Empire, but it would one day be. It was a very significant city, certainly for trade, for art, very wealthy. And it had a bit of a brand. Its brand was you don't want to mess with the people from Nineveh. When they beat you in battle, they don't just beat you. They make sure that no one ever wants to fight with them again. They're known for their violence and for their cruelty. And yet, they're called a great city here. Now, that could be just a way of saying it's a large city. We'll, we'll find out in chapter 4. There's a large number thousands upon thousands of inhabitants. I think, though, that God is even here tipping his hand that in his mind, Nineveh is a city worth saving that it's great in the sense that God cares about it. So Jonah's being sent to this pagan city known for their brand of violence. And this disobedient prophet amazingly obeys this time. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now let's not get too, uh, let's not pat Jonah on the back too hard here. Because as we'll see in verse 4, I don't think Jonah goes about this task with his full heart. Oh, he obeys. That's certainly better than disobeying. But I think there's some clues in the text that he does some half-hearted preaching. Well, notice verse 4. So Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Now, remember earlier we said that Nineveh was a city that was took three days to go across? I think that's a hint that Jonah does about a third of the work that he's supposed to do. He gets about a third of the way into the city. He's like, okay, this is good enough. And then he starts preaching. And and what does he preach? Well, at best, you could say it is a harsh message of judgment. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we're not given any indication that what Jonah says is untrue or not what God told him to say. We're also not told whether this is just a snippet of a larger message. I think it likely is. And yet this is the only recorded preaching of Jonah we have. And it is frankly short, direct and pretty brash. It is you are all going to be destroyed in 40 days period. Stop. End of sermon. So you have a preacher that does a third of the preaching he's supposed to do doesn't say anything about mercy or repentance or how to avoid the judgment and as we see in chapter four that fits we'll we'll see in chapter four that's going to fit exactly where Jonah's heart is you might think that this preaching is going to be as ineffective as going out and screaming at people on a uh, street corner or maybe you think maybe you do the math here A cruel people with a brand of violence being denounced by one foreign prophet in the middle of their city. Well, this is going to end poorly for Jonah. But that brings us to the second action we see in this text. Not just rising to the call to preach, we see repenting from evil. Repenting from evil. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Amazingly, Jonah's half-hearted preaching results in a whole city repenting from top to bottom. Now, sometimes you get a little glimpse into people's hearts through their actions that tips you off that they are repenting. And sometimes if there's enough of them, you can see a trend happening. Back in the 1740s, there was a preacher named William Grimshaw over in England. He was a, pre- a preacher at a time where the, there were one of the main vices that you could use to measure the state of people's souls was Sunday morning where they spent their time. You see, most of the churches were empty on Sunday mornings because the people were too busy at the horse races gambling away their money. Grimshaw, God's providence was a powerful preacher that called the the whole town to repentance and saw such widespread revival that the racetracks went out of business. Turned out everyone was too busy Sunday morning gathering for worship. Sometimes you could see repentance writ large by these big movements and actions of peoples. Well, we're told here that the people believed the word from God. I think that word is the word of judgment. They believe the threat that Jonah held out. And then they show us a little glimpse into their heart. They respond with acts that can only be described as repentance. They call for a fast. That's a way in the ancient world of showing your contrition, your lowliness before God. They stop eating and drinking. They take off their stylish clothes and they put on itchy sackcloth. That's another way of showing that you are a pitiable sinner. And then from the top to bottom, we're told this happens. There's not just one level of society. It happens from the highest to the lowest. This whole city was moved to this sort of repentance. And then what we see in 6 through 9 is teasing out what that really means from top to bottom. The most unlikely of people in this city leads the charge when it comes to repentance the king of Nineveh. Now at this point, the king of Nineveh was not the king of Assyria, but he was a very significant figure and he would have led the charge on their brand of cruelty and violence. And, and yet look in verse six, what we read about him. The word reached the king of Nineveh. We're not told no, that Jonah came and preached to him. Now, it seems like Jonah's word went viral and it made its way all the way to the throne room of the king. And then he makes a great descent. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. And then he has a new throne. He sits down in ashes. This is the highest man in the land that is lowering himself in response to this word of judgment preached against him. This is a mark of repentance. And then he goes even further than that. Not only is he personally going to repent, but he is going to make sure that there's no one in the city that does not hear of the plight that they are in and their need to repent also. Seven and following, and, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king instructs everyone, everyone so totally, let's even toss in your flocks and herds and your little pet dog and cat. Now, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of farm animals and and pets along the way. I've seen cats and dogs and cows even dressed in ridiculous outfits. I've never seen a farm animal dressed in sackcloth. I don't even want to think what that must be like to try and get that on. But even more than that, I've never seen an animal call out in prayer to God for mercy. And yet that's what the king calls them to do. It's almost comical in the breath that he calls them to. And the point, of course, is that the whole city is to take part in this. There is not a single person, not a child, Not even an animal that is exempt from needing to repent of their wickedness. Now, Notice that there is a specific sins that are called out also. The king, specifically in verse 8, tells everyone to turn from his evil way. And then the thing they're known for, from the violence that is in his hands. The city who has a, a brand known for being violent, well, that's the very thing that they are repenting of. And then finally, in verse 9, we get a hint why the king thinks this is worthwhile doing. Theologically, he realizes the plight they're in, and he realizes the only one that can save them is God. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So what we have here is a pagan king speaking far better than you expect any pagan king to speak, understanding his dilemma far greater than you expect any pagan prideful ruler to ever understand, and as a result, him humbling himself and his city along with him. But the big question is, will it work? Will all this sackcloth and ashes and lack of food and crying out in mercy, will it result in anyone being saved? Well, that's what brings us to the last action. The last action here, this time from God, we see relenting from judgment, relenting from judgment. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. There's a word play going on there in Hebrew. The word for them turning, for repenting, from God relenting and turning, those are all the same word. It's the Hebrew word nacham. And w- interpreters have struggled as how to express Uh, how to translate this word in a way that is not confusing and sometimes unhelpful. Some translations even have it in verse 10 that God repented of his actions, which implies that God realized he made a mistake and he was sorry. And friends, I, I don't think that's the way we are to understand what it means for God to turn or naham in this way. Now, I think if you've been paying attention to how God is presented in Jonah, you'll realize just how sovereign and big he is and how sovereign and big his plan is. Remember that giant storm, even the giant fish that rescued Jonah out of it? All that was sent by the giant God behind Jonah. The great revival of Nineveh is just like the great storm and the great fish. It is God's miraculous action in this world. It's not him being taken by surprise. Well, not just Jonah, though. If you know your Bible as a whole, you would know there's no way we could say that God was taken off guard and had to switch plans. Numbers 23, 19, for example. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God doesn't make mistakes. So God doesn't have to come up with something on the fly to fix a problem he gets himself into. So so what are we to understand about this then? Well, another section of the prophets helps us significantly, Jeremiah 18. In Jeremiah 18, God actually addresses this exact type of situation and tells us from the very beginning when he sends a prophet that his intention is to bring about repentance and to turn away his judgment if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do it. So baked into the cake when God sends a prophet is the implicit appeal. If you will turn from the evil... The thing that is causing my judgment to come upon you, then you will find my mercy. Now, friends, the way theologians put this together is simply to understand that God is not just interested in the end result, He's also interested in the steps that get us there. Or a tighter theological way of saying it would be God ordains not just the ends, but the means. He wants Nineveh to repent. So he sends a prophet to Nineveh. And that prophet runs, no surprise to him. He does a bunch of stuff to make sure that prophet still gets there and arrives exactly when he wants him to get there to bring about the revival, to turn away his fierce anger. Now, friends, I recognize this is the sort of thing, if you think about it too much, start to get a headache. Maybe some smoke starts to come out of your ears. And, and yet you can trust that God truly does here say that when we repent, we will find mercy. And believe me, friends, he is big enough for all of this to be part of his plan, even yes, our repentance. So at the end of the day, what we see here is God relentlessly working to bring about the repentance of this sinful pagan city to turn away his judgment and save. Thousands upon thousands of people. So, what do we do with this? Let me suggest three lines of application for us today. First, I think primarily, we're supposed to remember God's determination to show mercy to sinners. We're supposed to remember God's determination to show mercy to sinners. Last week, Pastor Eric preached from Ephesians 2, and he talked about what a miracle it is anytime anyone repents and turns to Jesus in saving faith. If we really believe it's a miracle that God does inside of people, then we should have the most hope of all that we would see God show mercy to the worst of sinners that we might have in our lives. Maybe it's a family member that you love dearly, that you've tried to help, and no matter what you do, it just seems to get worse. Maybe you feel like you're at the end of your resources, like there's nothing more left to do. Friend, if you believe in the God that sent Jonah and that showed mercy to Nineveh, then you are not at the end of your rope of hope. You can continue holding out hope that God might show mercy even today to that person you love. I think this changes the way we listen to the news. I don't know about you. I find it very easy to get discouraged uh, as I'm trying to keep myself informed to live as salt and light. It it just seems like there's so much bad news that it overwhelms my defenses. And yet when I remember, as bad as it might be in this nation or another nation far all the way across the globe, as, as hopeless as it may look, God can bring about repentance. He can show mercy and turn a nation around in an instant. If we believe that, we, we, should, give, we should have a, <clears throat> a supply of hope to carry us through even the difficult times in this world. Remember God's willingness to show mercy to sinners. Certainly remember it in your own life. Maybe you've fallen into a hole that's deep enough that you're not sure how you're going to get out of it today. Friend, you are not beyond the mercy of the God that sent Jonah. If you turn to him today, you will find all the mercy and grace that you could possibly need. Second, remember how important repentance is. Remember how important repentance is. We'd already noted noted the incredible repentance of the Ninevites. But Jesus actually helps us to connect the dots to ourselves ourselves of how they actually serve as a lesson for us and how we are supposed to respond to God's word. Matthew 12, verse 38 through 41, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it You see how Jesus applies Jonah to people in his day and how it would apply to us? The people of Nineveh, they did receive a word from God, but it wasn't the fullness of revelation about God. It was about God's judgment and his justice. And yet they repented. What about those that heard the preaching of Jesus himself? That saw the very word of God incarnate, who heard him speak about not just God's justice, but his mercy. Well, well, they are even more responsible to repent. Brothers and sisters, what about us? Those of us who didn't look forward with lots of unanswered questions about the cross and the resurrection, what about those of us on the other side who have the full gospel preached to us again and again and again, who know the justice and mercy of God meeting at the cross of Christ, who know why God can turn away his wrath from sinners because of the mercy that was purchased by Jesus on the cross, who know of not just the mercy of God, but the grace and the love that's ours when we come to God through Jesus. What level of responsibility do we have to repent when we hear the fullness of the gospel preached, how much greater is the light that we've received than the light that the Ninevites did and repented? Students, maybe you've heard Bible stories your whole life. Maybe you've sat in church with your family. You know nothing but being around Christians at least once a week. But honestly, ask yourself, Have you repented to the word, repented at the word that God has sent you? No one else can do it for you. Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? It's a great privilege to hear the gospel preached. It's an even greater one to hear it done consistently in your own home and in your church. Don't squander that. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Please understand that this is what we want most for you because we understand this to be your greatest need. That you turn from whatever you're trusting in, whether that's your self-esteem or your career or some sort of self-help philosophy, that you turn from it and instead you turn to God to cry out in mercy. And friend, if you do that, you will find all the mercy and grace you need. Jesus has already paid for every single sin if you would just receive and believe. All of us, the Ninevites remind us what true repentance looks like. Now, we don't know how long their repentance lasted from history. It seems like they went back to their old ways pretty quick. And yet it's presented to us as genuine repentance here at whatever level it happened. and it, It's instructive for us. Notice repentance can happen quickly or it can happen slowly sometimes. Notice how there was anguish, sorrow over sin. And you notice how they God let them sit in it for a while. it didn't just evaporate overnight. That's often uh, a mark of true repentance. Do you notice how they called out specific sins? I, I think this is one thing that Christians stumble over very often when it comes to repentance. We want to stay general and in so doing, save ourselves embarrassment. But the king of Nineveh points out the sin they are known for, violence. True repentance comes with specificity for the sins we've committed before God and others. And then finally, there was these sweeping actions in response. They would do anything they could to demonstrate to God that they were contrite and lowly in heart. Let's remember what true repentance is and let's ourselves remember that Every time we hear the word of God preached, that we are supposed to check our own hearts so that we might be people that repent again and again to turn from our sin and turn back to God. Finally, I think there's a third line of application here that all of us need to remember how God has called us to bring his word. All of us need to remember how God has called us to bring his word. In the example of Jonah, we see what one day of half-hearted preaching can accomplish. A whole city converted. I just have to wonder, what would it be like? What would it be like if a whole church full of Christians, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the word of God in their hands as they went out? What, What if they were not so timid and afraid? What if they were not caught up in all the times they failed before? What if they all went out and preached the good news of Jesus without apology? What might God do? Maybe this week even, you failed to live up to your calling, to bring the gospel to all the nations, to to preach to, to people about Jesus, whoever God puts in front of you. Friend, remember, remember from Jonah, God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. There's mercy even for your failure to serve him. And there are new opportunities to succeed where you have failed before, now with his help. Brothers and sisters, let's remember that we're all called to be witnesses to Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, we might see a miracle maybe we would see people turn from their sin and turn to the God of Jonah. Our God's mercy is so much bigger than even our hopes and imaginations. So easy to underestimate how God could show mercy to sinners, especially sinners like you and me. I think that's why Jesus wove into our church rhythm the Lord's table because the Lord's table is a reminder of the justice of God and the mercy he has toward sinners. As we take it together, we have a symbol that reminds us that each and every one of us has received mercy from God and that we together are an example of the greatness of the God who saves even the worst of sinners. Let's pray as we prepare for the table.